Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Ardena Osman, here with my friend Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Gitin, daf Lamed Chet, page 38. Well, I'm just going to come in and say it. This daf is pretty uncomfortable to read. It, it basically involves a lot of information about the practice of slavery as it was done. And uh, yeah, I think we, you know, slavery is not something that we uh, uphold as something that should happen anymore. Now, again, I don't think anybody today, any rabbi would say, uh, I could be wrong about this, that somehow slavery is an ideal. And probably the laws around slavery more really reflect that at the time that the Torah was given, slaves were a part of life. Um, and therefore, as it, we know in halacha, every part of our life is regulated. And so therefore, there are halachot around slaves. I think what was most interesting to me, though, about this staff, and uh, primarily what this staff deals with is, is cases of can, if your slave run, you know, if your slave gets ransomed and the ransom is paid, are they freed afterwards? If your slave ran away from a jail, are they freed afterwards? Uh, are you even allowed to free your slave? There's going to be a whole discussion on Ahmed Bet about whether or not it's a prohibition to actually free your slaves. So that's a whole interesting discussion. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I actually found most interesting is that, the you know, we sort of think of this as the whole issue of slaves as being, I guess, more of like a biblical issue. And then lo and behold, we actually have some stories. There's two stories, in fact, in Ahmed Aleph of Amurayim, right? Of times, things that took place during the time of the Amurayim of uh, incidences with their slaves. So that's the part that I'm going to read. Uh, but I found that to be interesting to see that it was actually pretty persistent. I mean, this this practice was still there. I guess, you know, if I had time and we weren't doing this at the pace of the DAF, I would actually want to do like a deep dive to understand a little bit more practices of slavery within Judaism and how that actually worked. Um, and, you know, but I think one thing that we do need to understand is, is that when we're talking about a slave, we're really talking about a non-Jew. Uh, you know, the typical slave was a Canaanite, um, and they actually were brought into the household and actually had to keep particular Jewish customs of the household itself. Um, and part of the tension that we do see in this staff as well is is that there becomes a question if sometimes it's better to sleeve your, free your slave if you see that your slave is participating in practices, right? It tends to be of sexual sexual in nature that are not considered to be good. And I think when I read those passages, it shows us that obviously there was, you know, as we know from seeing even events of slavery that took place. And again, it's very hard to read this without the bias of sort of American history, at least in my mind, in my head, um, you know, that obviously I think this was a population that were abused, uh, you know, sexually or taken advantage of. And so, but I think that piece is important about freeing them, you know, if they are being, you know, if they're participating in actions that are not looked good at, because I think part of what slavery was supposed to do is they were supposed to be integrated into a Jewish household. Um, and so, you know, and, and, and sort of live what that, you know, type of moral life is supposed to be. And if we see that not happening, that becomes a problem. So I'm just going to read a couple of quick passages from Ahmed Aleph that discusses that. So the first is the first story that we have here. We have a story about Shmuel's uh, slave woman, and then we also have one of Rabbi Abba Barzutra. Uh, so the one with Shmuel is Atme Demar Shmuel Ishtabe, right? So it happened to be that the Canaanite slave, you know, slave woman of Shmuel was taken captive. 
Parkue Lishum Amhavta. So some Jews ransomed her, right? And the intention was that she would still remain a slave woman. Now, again, remember there had been a discussion that if the slave gets ransomed, they actually should be freed. Vishadrule. And they sent her back. So they ransomed her, they sent her back to Shmuel. Shlachule, right? And they sent this message to him. Anan Kabraban Shimon Begamlio Severlan. We hold in accordance with Rabban Shimon Gamliel, right, who basically he held, and that opinion was stated before, that a ransom slave always needs to be returned. They're not actually freed. At it nami So even if you hold in according with the rabbis, who says that, a, that you do not return a slave, anan lishum amhata parkina na nihala, right? You still should basically accept her being returned because we ransomed her with the intention that basically uh, she would be, um, uh, that she would be, uh, you know, that she would actually be, uh, you know, returned to you. And that's how, that's why we did this. Um, now, again, it may have been that they meant to do this uh, nicely, you know, in other words, that she wouldn't be, it was a way of giving him back, giving her back to Shmuel. So the Gemara, you know, basically explains that they made a mistake here. Right? They thought that it was before there was Yeish. Remember before that, you know, the owner, Shmuel, would have thought, oh, there's no way that I'm going to get this slave back. And therefore, we remember we talked about this distinction that if it was before Yeish, uh, then the slave does get returned. Below he, but it wasn't so. It was after Yeish. And in that case, both Rabbi, the rabbis and Rabbi Shimon would agree that this woman would have to be freed, um, even though there was an intention to keep her as a slave. So the Gemara then says what Shmuel responded to them. Ushmuel, lo mi de lo right? Not only did he not enslave her, elegita gita nami lo He even said that she didn't require a, a get shechor. She didn't even require that piece of paper. She's so freed, right? In a way, she doesn't even need her emancipation get. So the Gemara is going to explain why that is. Ushmuel letame, right? Shmuel, it's, you know, it, it, it goes with his reasoning to Amr Shmuel because Shmuel says, Hamafkir abdo get If somebody declares his slave is ownerless, right? The slave is becomes free and doesn't need this get shechor. Shinatmar, and he bases it on his uh, reading of uh, Pasuk in Shmot, chapter 12, verse 44, that says, miknat kesef, every slave of a man who is purchased with money. And so what this Pasuk is teaching us, right, so this is, what this Pasuk is really talking about, the context of this is, is that you are not allowed to take part of a Pesach, of the Korban Pesach, until you circumcise all of your slaves. Um, but the word each in this pasuk is actually extra, it's superfluous. And so the Gemara is trying to understand, or what, what is, why does it need to say ish? Evet ish below evet isha. So do we mean this to mean a man slave and not a woman slave? No. Ella evet shigeshlo reshut lerabo, a love karui evet. So it teaches us that a slave whose master has control over him is called a slave. That's why he's a slave of a man. She'en lo reshut lerabo, a love in karui evet. But a slave who does not have control, uh, you know, whose master doesn't have control over him um, uh, is not called a slave, right? He's not a eved ish. So what this all means is, is that after a, uh, uh, the slave's owner, the slave's master basically says, okay, there's no way I'm going to get the slave back. 
the slave is basically freed and therefore he wouldn't need to get shikor. Like mentally, he's not, you know, he the, the, the owner doesn't think of him as a slave anymore because he knows he's not going to get him back. And therefore, uh, he is, he doesn't need, he doesn't need this document to basically say that he is emancipated, right? Um, and the other thing you need to know is, is that once that slave is actually emancipated, they actually are allowed to marry a Jew, okay? Which is also interesting because again, they, the, the male slave would have been circumcised. They are integrated into the household in a way that actually makes them Jewish. So this is the first point that's interesting, that Shmuel sort of has this understanding that if the owner already is like mentally separated from the slave, right? that slave doesn't even need to get shikor. That like the status, you don't need a piece of paper to sort of uh, explain uh, what that's, you know, what that status is going to be. Um, okay, uh, you know, there is a, a, another story, right, later on uh, uh, about a slave in Pumpedita, which I just want to read. And it, it's not a nice story. Hahi amta dehave Pumpedita. So there was a, a Canaanite slave woman who was in Pumpedita, who men performed, you know, sinful acts with. In other words, she obviously was used sexually in a way that was not appropriate. So Abayah said, were it not that Rabbi Yehuda said in the name of Shmuel, that anyone who emancipates his Canaanite slave transgresses a positive commandment, okay, uh, so basically, what what is the, what is he talking about here? Uh, the pasuk says in Vayikra, chapter twenty five, verse forty six, right? Leolam bahem ta'avodu. You write that once you have this Canaanite slave, they should always be part of your. You you have to have them forever, okay? But uh, um, but again, but this only applies to a slave, right? Who is owned by his master. But if you, but somebody can emancipate a slave, right? If you can't force him to work anymore, there's a whole discussion in the Tosfos and other commentaries what this actually means. But this is why, if a slave actually escapes from captivity, we have to free him, okay? Because that's not you didn't transgress this particular prohibition. Because it's basically if he, you know, escaped to freedom, the his master, his owner, can no longer actually force him to work anymore. So Abai is saying, okay, you know, there's this statement of Rav Yehuda said in the name of Shmuel that anybody who frees their slave actually, you know, it, it, it's, you know, is over, is transgressed a positive commandment. Have kafna le lemara, right? I would force her master, that he would be forced to actually free her because then she could marry a Jew, basically, and she wouldn't do all of these things. And I think we see like a tension here. Now the Gemara is going to bring a, another statement of, uh, of Ravina. Ravina actually says, no, that he, he can free her, right? Ravina Amarki have moda Rav Yehuda, right? In this type of case, Rav Yehuda would agree that she should be freed. Mishum Milsa di because it's so bad, you know, like because she's a slave, all of these terrible things are happening. Now, uh, you know, the Gemara is going to go back and forth, uh, you know, uh, and, and actually challenge what Abaye says, right? <laughs> right? But Abaye, Mishumi Sura Lo, is Abaye really going to say that we would prevent her from freeing, you know, um, 
uh, from freeing her if, she, if, 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 if this is what was happening to her. Um, and so they're going to, they'll discuss this a little bit more. But I, I, as painful and as difficult as this passage is to read, I think what we really get out of this passage is, is that the whole concept of slavery is not something that we can really relate to. And I think we all find distasteful. But, but the key here is, is that you had a slave woman who was not doing things that were moral, right? Again, they were happening to her. I don't think it's that she was a willing participant because it's very, very clear. It says that there were men doing things to her. And so th- that's not ethical. That's not what's supposed to happen. And therefore she actually should be freed because we don't want that to happen and let her get married and let her have, you know, a, 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 a freed life. And so I, I, I think it's this kind of passage here, you know, which really shows us like, Slavery is not an ideal, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not, and, 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 and slaves should not be mistreated. And if slaves are going to be, now, is the language as strong as I would like it? No, it's not the way that we would talk about slavery. There's nobody saying anything that it's abhorrent or, uh, you know, invoking words of social justice or anything like that. But again, I think it's really clear in the pages of the Gemara that if they saw a slave being mistreated or participating in things that should not be happening, that slave should be freed. That's not a way that a slave is supposed to be living. But again, I, I, I'm finding this whole doc to be uh, particularly difficult to read. So uh, I'll go out on a limb and say the distasteful thing, which is that I'm not sure that I find uh, slavery as it's presented in the Gemara, certainly here, as anywhere near as distasteful as you do, Yardina, um, in part because I don't connect it to American slavery, which I think we can all accept as abhorrent. It's not that I'm in favor of any population owning, quote-unquote, another population. It's that I think that Chazal's understanding of Jews and Avadim Knanim, right, the Canaanite slaves, is I think it's really different from slavery the way we conceive it in a Western mindset. I think there's a notion that there's a privilege to being an Avid Kanani because you come under the umbrella of the Jewish people and you get to keep mitzvot or at least some mitzvot and that puts you under the protection of Hashem. And so then, you know, why should a slave, an Evid Kanani, who is not keeping those mitzvot, why is that person supposed to be freed? Because like, get out of here. You're not really going to be part of the Jewish people. And I think that that's I, it's still a little paternalistic, right? Like the we know better for you type of thing. Sure. Like I'm not saying that it's um, it doesn't really align with modern sensibilities of liberty. But I think that what they're talking about is slaves who are treating well. Like it has to be that they're talking about slaves who are treated well. If you're treating your slaves not, slaves not well, then then that's not the right thing to do as opposed to saying the institution of this kind of slavery to begin with is impossible, which I guess most of us would feel nowadays, sure. But again, I think it's a different sensibility because non-Jews weren't otherwise going to be able to come under the rubric of you know the children of Israel and their mitzvot altogether. So it gives them an advantage, I think Chazal thought, right? To be able to say that, okay, you know, people, non-Jews, who kind of get to attach themselves or fundamentally be attached to the Jewish people. And the way they do that is by becoming slaves. Now, 
I'm going to leave that for some food for thought. The discussion as it continues in on Amadbet really does get into this in this sense of, you know, that, the, you know, the question of is someone supposed to be a slave forever, right? Being an Evid Knani and therefore being part of the Jewish people. And then the question is like, does that person then get freed and fully take on mitzvot like a convert and therefore become part of the Jewish people in a, you know, for real or are they already part of the Jewish people in being an Evid Kanani? And this is part of the discussion that we find on Amad Bet. Um, towards the top, it says, Gufa Amar of Yehuda Mashmuel, Kol HaMeshachwer Avdo Oved Ba'aseh. Over Ba'aseh. Somebody who freed, uh, Rav, Rav Yehuda says, that Shmuel says, that somebody who frees a slave violates a positive commandment. Meaning, the idea that you have, there's a verse, right? Um, in Vayikra, chapter 25, the idea that there are slaves who are going to be served, who are going to serve the Jewish people in that way forever. But the point is that once it's in a verse and it says, Le'olam, it says forever, then, you know, how do you, any slaveholder, how do you have the right to free that person? There's a Torah commandment that says you're going to own them as such as it is forever. So the Gemara is going to object to this. It's a it's a story. It, it's a found in a brighter, but the objection is taken from real live behavior from amongst Chazal, in particular here, Rabbi Lezer. What does he do? He goes into a shul, into a synagogue. They don't have ten men for the minion to daven, as you know, in the quorum. So he frees his slave. He emancipates his slave. And now they have 10, right? So therefore, we have a whole discussion, and we're not going to get into it now in Dafyomi, but you should know there's a big discussion amongst the Rishonim about, you know, doesn't this then imply that the Evid Kanani, once freed, is considered really part of B'nai Israel, as opposed to saying such a person is a non-Jew, because he would never, he wouldn't free... A, like a non-Jew would not then automatically become become part of the quorum of Jews who have gathered per, for prayer, right? The idea that the slave doesn't have the same obligation, you know, would suggest you know the same obligations in this in the context of the tefillah would mean that he can't participate fully and can't count in the minion. But once he's freed, he can count in the minion. The implication being the fact that he's a Kanani is irrelevant. As soon as he's a freed man, he can participate. So. The Gemara answers that that is a different situation. Why? Mitzvah shani, meaning in completing the the quorum and being part of the mit, the minion, it generates, um, I don't know what, a mitzvah for this slave or this former slave. And therefore, there's extenuating circumstances that would allow the owner to free the slave, meaning for the sake of doing that mitzvah. Otherwise, if you have no good reason other than the generosity of your heart, let's say, which we all might find to be a good reason, that is not enough to counter the Torah that says uh, the person, the Kananim, are going to be slaves. So now the Gemara is going to get a different objection, namely, I'm sorry, it's an objection to the proof, not to the original claim. Le'olam bahem ta'avodu reshut Um... What happens is, is, listen, when it says you take your take slaves, these slaves forever, the easy answer to say, I'm, I'm pausing because I'm thinking, you know, on the one hand, it's brought here in the context of responding to the story of Rebbe Lezer, but on the other hand, it also provides us with an out regarding to the, the verse in um, Vayikra, which is really what we want, right? Meaning the bright of, with Rebbe Lezer and the, and the Minyan um, ends with a conclusion 
right? That it's because it's a mitzvah to make this minion. And otherwise, you would not be allowed to do it. So the Gemara still wants to come and say, yes, you're allowed to free your slaves. And I think, Yardina, that there we have that ambiguity, certainly, that there's not, it's not like Chazal were gung-ho over the constitution, the institution of slavery, right? It's that there's still a greater tolerance for it, I think, because there's a fundamentally different conception of what it means. But in any case, it says, Rashut, meaning the fact that the Torah says that you that you take your your servants, your slaves here forever, but the point is that you can, not that you have to, meaning it's not a requirement to do it. It's that if you wanted to, or if you were in the situation that you do, then you are fulfilling that mitzvah. Rabbi Kiva, but Rabbi Kiva says, no, no, it's an obligation. So now we have to understand the difference here between Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi Kiva. V'dilma Rabbi Lezer savar la kamanda marishut. Now, but we can conclude Rabbi Lezer's story about the minyan, instead of saying it's because it was a mitzvah, we could just say that Rabbi Lezer lines up with a view that says that it's a reshut to begin with, that it's optional to begin with. And therefore, you can't prove from Rabbi Lezer's example because of mitzvah, you can't prove that what he's doing is for sure upholding the idea that otherwise you're obligated to hold your slaves forever. Rather, maybe he's just holding the reshoot side of the argument and therefore, you know, therefore you're allowed to free your slaves, you know, if you were to want to. Lo So the Gemara says, no, no, don't think, the Rabbi Lezer thinks, thought, that um, a permanent enslavement was only optional. Why did Tanya behead? Because it's, we have a, a brighter that says explicitly, because when it says that verse from Vayikra that says you could take your bondman forever, so Rabbi Lezer himself said chova, along the lines of Rabbi Akiva here. So let's see how we have one more piece to play out here. We're in Aramaic, right? It's a later generation. And indeed, Rabba says, when we have these issues, these three matters, right? There are three ways that people who own their homes become impoverished. I would just say paying a mortgage in rising mortgage rates, but raising, rising mortgage rates, but I will leave that aside and my cynicism for the moment, right? Here, we're talking here about specifically people who, what do they do? They free their slaves. They inspect their property on Shabbos, meaning don't do that. And they also, they set their meals on Shabbat to the time of the the drasha in the Beit Midrash, meaning so that they would miss it. So the first one, I think we can understand in a monetary way, if you free your slaves, then you're going to have less money, right? That's part of the issue. Inspecting your property on Shabbat or setting your Shabbat meals to conflict with the drasha in Shul or in the Beit Midrash sounds more like an ethical complaint that's going to bring you down, <coughs> excuse me, rather than it actually being a financial loss. Um, and, but, and, you know, and therefore you'll have the financial loss because of the wrongdoing that you're doing. There are two families in Jerusalem. One second. There are two families They were in Jerusalem. One had its meal on Shabbat and one had its meal on Erev Shabbat. And both of them were uprooted. What does it mean they were uprooted? It means that both of them were um, 
well, it seems that they lost their standing, right? And they did this, the one, because they're um, messing with eating instead of learning Torah in the Beit Midrash. And the other, apparently, the claim is by the commentaries that when you eat on Erev Shabbat, shouldn't that be a good solution? You're not going to mess with the Beit Midrash time. Really, it says, no, but now you're treating Erev Shabbat as if it's Shabbat, and it's not Shabbat, so what are you doing to Shabbat? Right? That's a disparagement of Shabbat. Both cases seem to be a disparagement of Shabbat. This is such a left turn. You know, like I don't mean left versus right. I mean like a veering off from the topic at hand of slavery that I find it really interesting that what, what are we suddenly dealing with um, paying attention to how a family, you know, retains its wealth or not is about Shabbat observance or the sensitivity to making the day even more special, even if you're not technically violating malacha, which I imagine that if we had the time to delve into it, would at some level connect back to the question of how do Avadim Knanim conduct themselves and to what extent are they becoming part of the people. But that is not what this daf says, right? It gives us all the issue of the question of freeing your slaves. Is that allowed? Is that not allowed? Oh, and by the way, you know, by the way, freeing your slaves is another way to lose the wealth, you know, in the context of other things that are a matter of disrespect to Shabbat, where presumably then God will, you know, as it were, have have your money for that. Um, it It is unclear, unclear, you know, is saying it um, very generously. It is unclear exactly what this connection is without delving in much deeper, except for the fact that the Breitah does connect them. So then it makes sense that the Gemara would bring the Breitah that says, you'll lose your money if you free your slaves. Um, is that because freeing slaves is, as I suggested before, a financial issue? Or is it because you're in some way violating that verse and therefore, you know, it's a some kind of spiritual punishment that you would have the monetary loss, right? Like a spiritual uh, spiritual reason for the physical monetary loss, uh, similar to the Shabbat issue. I think that's as far as I can take it, at least for now. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this DAF. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 